hub, and spoke. Audio Collective. This is Rumble Strip. I'm Erica Heilman. So we have this sign here that sort of says, we regret to report that due to the many repercussions of the COVID epidemic, our new exhibit about knots is not yet fully installed. <gasps> you are welcome to wander in for a preview if you like, but not all the displays and wall texts are complete. We apologize for this inconvenience. We ask for your patience. I should have said we beg. We beg for your patience in accommodating the vicissitudes of a homemade museum. Thank you, the management. So that's what greets you at the entrance to the knot exhibit. This is the sound of hundreds of little bells connected to a mesh curtain that is connected to a wire, which is connected to an old record player, which is gently agitating the bells at the entrance of the Museum of Everyday Life, which is also where you find the written apology, which Claire Dolan just read. Claire is the curator of this museum, And at the same time she was planning this year's exhibit, she was also busy working as an ICU nurse at a small rural hospital in the Northeast Kingdom in the middle of a pandemic. The Museum of Everyday Life lives in a barn on Route 16, about eight miles from Glover, population 2000. And even if the new exhibit isn't quite finished, it's already strange and brilliant. Over the years, the Museum of Everyday Life has given us the toothbrush, the mirror, bells and whistles, celebrations of objects we use every day in our unglamorous everyday lives. This year's exhibit features the knot. Claire and I sat in our masks on a hot summer day and talked about knots and about her work as a nurse in a pandemic and beyond. It starts out with Claire talking about how she chose knots as the subject for the new exhibit. Welcome. I sort of found my way to knots by way of rope and string. But then I realized that rope and string, I'm, I, I feel, I find I'm, I'm um, veering now towards things that aren't necessarily objects, but are more tied into an activity like baths and bathing, you know. And then it was February. I usually announce the subject matter on Valentine's Day. And February, things were just really heating up with, the coronavirus and we were just coming out of like the impeachment drama I think I can't even remember now but it felt like um knots the twisty friction-filled complex form of a knot and its action of both sort of binding together and also restraining and sort of it just seemed appropriate to the times So it's February. In addition to picking the subject for the new exhibit, you're also an ICU nurse at a um, at a hospital here in the Northeast Kingdom, a tiny hospital. And February is around when the um, pandemic was hitting. So what was it like at the hospital around the same time? Um, I think that, uh, you know, we were so lucky in that we never our hospital never got overwhelmed with cases. We never had what, what I would hear from nurse colleagues in New York, like patients uh, parked in stretchers in the hallway and full to capacity day after day and people dying relentlessly, relentlessly dying, dying, dying. I never saw any of that and I feel so grateful. And I don't want to pretend that anything I experienced was remotely close to that. At the same time, I did find it significantly stressful. I I felt like um, there wasn't enough attention, concern, and empowerment of the 
frontline nurses who were actually taking care of the patients. A lot of the organization and decision-making was happening on some higher administration level. After a lot of complaining, they finally started inviting nurses to those meetings, but it took a lot of agitation. And to me, I feel like that's just a no-brainer. Of course, you incorporate the people who are going to be delivering the care. You must consult them when you're planning on how you're going to set up the care. Um, And then all of the getting in and out of the protective gear, that was all new for us and incredibly time-consuming. So it would slow down our day and make everything that we needed to do each day with every patient 10 times longer. And so we would get further and further behind. Initially, there was sort of too many patients you were supposed to be able to care for under these sort of labor-intensive donning and doffing of protective gear situations. You know, it all got worked out. And I think in the end, the hospital was full of self-congratulations and like, In a sense, I agree, we did rise to the occasion, but it was very hard on the nurses. The priority in this country right now should be getting more nurses on deck to serve in these hospitals, relieving the the labor burden of the nurses who are still doing too much every day. Nursing is just, everyone always votes nurses as the number one most trusted professional. You know, they have these polls all the time and nurses always come out on top. Yes, nurses are trusted, but that's not the same thing as respected. The profession of nursing does not get the compensation, the respect, and the power that it deserves. At the same time, I'm so glad I'm a nurse and nursing is one of the best things I feel like I could do as a job and as, you know, for humanity. Like there's nothing that counts more than when someone's in pain or is in bodily distress that you're doing something to alleviate that or to heal them. Like that's the most profound thing you could possibly do. I think like anyone who works in healthcare or maybe anyone who works in an in a in in an EMT it's a really high impact relationship developed i think the interesting thing about nursing is that the playing field is this very intimate landscape which is somebody's body unless you're intimate with someone like a sexual partner with someone or a parent with a child like a baby that you're taking care of their body there's mostly like not other interfaces in which we interfere intimately with other people's body. Like we just don't, you can be bosom buddies with someone, but you're not going to be doing things to their orifices or, you know, that's just not humans have boundaries and our bodily integrity is one of our most profound and important boundaries. And nursing is the one profession where, The location of action and interaction is someone's body. So for people who haven't been here, Claire's house is right here near the barn where the exhibit is. I like the relationship that you don't develop with people who come to the museum. There's not a lot of like, hey, where are you coming from? (laughs) Yeah, no, I don't like to chit-chat. So, um, you know... People pull up, and if I'm right there, you know, then I usually say, hey, coming to see the exhibit? And they say, yeah. And I say, okay, enjoy your visit. And done. 
Um, but you know, sometimes people come out and I'm and they have a question, then I'm happy to answer the question and and talk to them. You know, I'm not rude or anything, but I don't encourage. You know, also like when you come to see a place or a thing, you don't want to feel like you're under scrutiny. Um, yeah. But so it's self-service. So you just, um, you turn on the lights and you sanitize your hands and you put on your mask and you come in and then you can wander about and experience the exhibit. And how are the leaks? The leaky roof is still leaking. Um, you know, when we had that big downpour the other day, boy, there were a lot of buckets up in here. Here we are in the Nazi exhibit. Over here um, is my favorite section, the macrame room. Macrame, knitting, crocheting. Old, wonderful, and important handcraft practices resulting in textiles and clothes um, that have a great history and are very meaningful and also beautiful, intricate, complex, worthy of admiration and celebration. So we'll just take a dive in. And in order to enter the macrame room, you'll see that we're going to enter through two beautiful examples of macrame curtains. And this whole room just is so moving to me here. We'll just step right in. Um, yeah, it's an environment. It harkens back without shame to, you know, the macrame renaissance that happened in the 70s. And I grew up in the 70s and experienced all this and more. So here in the macrame room, you'll see beautiful examples of macrame dresses, a macrame hammock, a macrame plant hangers. Those are big. Yeah, there's a lot of that, there's a lot of that going on in here. You'll see the macrame lampshade. Um, you'll see the Amish knot rug made by a non-Amish person. Um, so it's just a beautiful environment. You can lie on the hammock, look at the plant hangers, and just remember when you were a kid and surrounded by macrame, what could be better? And this took a long time to do. This is the Ashley Book of Knots wall. So the Ashley Book of Knots is sort of the famous knot Bible. As you can see, it's a huge book. And it was written by this incredible character named Clifford W. Ashley, who it, it's really worth reading. He has drawn and described and cataloged pretty much every knot there is, is in this book. But he has this beautiful introductory text, text on knots. And throughout the book, he does a lot of pontificating about knots. And it's, it's really worth reading. It's very, it's a great text and tome. And these are, these are all examples of knots found in the Ashley Book of Knots. To me, they're beautiful pieces of sculpture, particularly in this heavy white rope. I found this beautiful rope and against the black wall, it's nice. I particularly like this bead knot, this form here. I just find that gorgeous. Single strand lanyard knot variation, number 583. Is there any way to describe just the the range of things that might beset you on any given day in a hospital in the Northeast Kingdom. 
you know, you could, when you say like, give a smattering of like the cast of characters you might encounter or the situations you might encounter. I feel like to me, what the challenge is like, how are you, how do you navigate? Here's a human being in the bed and you like, you need to adjust the Foley catheter that's like going into their penis and draining the urine out of their bladder. There's something wrong with it. It's not draining the urine. Maybe it needs to be flushed. Maybe you need to adjust the tube a little by, by pushing it in a little further or pulling it out a little further. Okay, there's a million reasons why I need to do this task. I need to do this task but I still have to remember, like, this is a human being with a whole life story and a whole, like, history. And maybe they taught third grade for a million years. It's just a human being who has, like, dignity. And you're shoving, you're, like, shoving this tube up their penis. You know, you, like, how do you go in there and you have to do this task? But you want it the same and you want to get it done in a timely way because there's a lot to do in a day with a patient. So, you know, you have to give them medications, you have to do treatments, you have to get them to, to have their various tests in the different parts of the hospital. You have to change their linen in their bed. You have to wash them up. You have to make sure they eat if they're eating. You have to make sure they get their tube feeding if they're getting a tube feeding. You have to make sure, you know, it, there's a series of tasks that have to happen. But in the middle of all that, it's also an exercise in, in, in this sort of being this bridge and being mindful that this isn't, this person isn't just like a list of tasks for me. This is a human who's in this condition and that you want to be this bridge and that you also want to have this respectful relationship to their body because you're touching their body. Susan Sontag writes that beautiful thing about, you know, like there's the land of the healthy and the land of the sick. And when you're an inhabitant of the country of the sick, you feel so isolated and alienated from the country of the living. And the nurse is like that bridge. Like the nurse can try and be that bridge who lets those people who are in the country of the ill know that they're not irrevocably cut off from the country of the healthy that there's people who are there with them, who can visit them there in that country of the sick and to, who can be there with them. Oh, yes. Hi. Sorry. Oh, that's all right. Hi. Um, this is the section on anarchic knots, which covers tangles and snarls, which, which are unintentional or, or, or knots of anarchy. So this is a tangle in an electric extension cord, um, it, it, like I really wanted to think about like what are those typical things where these spontaneous, unplanned, unwanted knots occur? And boy, extension cord, that like, I couldn't think of anything that has given me more hours of frustration. Hoses. Hoses too, hoses too. But here, so I have extension cord on one hand and earphone on the other because those like earbud cords you, you just put them somewhere and immediately they tangle themselves right. it's like a magical thing so this is in the tangles and snarls department um and across from the the extension cord and tangled ear earbuds is the um another tangle and snarl category which is hair so we have um two examples of that one is a is a very refined curated 
example of hair snarls that were created under very specific circumstances. These are, you see, four little snarls of hair carefully stitched and placed on a pillow, which is then in place encased in a in a vitrine. And these are from contributed by a museum contributor um, named Jennifer Monson, who um, realized that what she does during these long and interminable staff meetings that she has to attend as part of her job as a professor is she takes a small section of her hair and rubs it ritualistically between her forefinger and thumb forming these tiny micro knots in her hair and if the meeting has been particularly long and and agitating and boring she ends up with quite a significant little tangle and then she doesn't know what to do she has this tangle she just picks them out or cuts them out and she realized when she heard that the knot exhibit was happening that this could be an important contribution and i thought indeed you know here we have a fine example of the knot as sort of a marker of experience and um you know the the size and the density of the knot directly correlating to the intensity of that staff meeting experience so a knot is also a problem, a secret combination of movements, a bump or a swelling on a skull or a tree limb that often indicates injury. We speak of a crowd of people as another kind of knot, a knot of humanity, tangled and in motion. The word knot here conjures an understanding of the tension that arises from moving past each other, living amongst each other, intertwining in a community, in a country, in a crowded, complicated world. The knot as a subject becomes painfully appropriate as we created this exhibit in the midst of epidemic uprising and mind-bending totalitarian governmental response. Some knots can appear so intricate that any attempt to understand them inspires despair. It can be impossible to understand the twists and turns in the dark interior of a knot when simply gazing at it from a distance. Only by slowly picking it apart, using the appropriate tools, can we hope to loosen the frictions, follow the serpentine paths of its loops and bends, until we can finally see how it's made and learn at last to untie it. I can think of one guy that was like, um, who was detoxing. He had pneumonia, I think, but he was someone who drank every day. And so because he was in the hospital, he couldn't drink. So he started to withdraw. And so when people withdraw from alcohol, a lot of times they go through an intense period of confusion where they're sort of restless and confused sometimes they can you know fight you they don't realize where they are they pull out their tubes and lines so he went through this delirium for several days and you know it's this kind of long tedious time with a patient where you're you know giving them medications and trying to keep them in bed and reorienting them over and over and they're confused and stuff and then i think it was sort of towards the end of that period and he was clearing up a little but he was still incredibly restless and he just kept saying like, I want to stand up. I want to stand up. And I kept saying, you're too weak to stand up. You have to stay in bed. You're too weak to stand up. I want to stand up. I want to stand up. And like it went on and on all shift like that. And finally, 
there was some moment where he was like, I want to stand up. And I was like, okay, let's see if you can do it. And, you know, I said that with, you know, a little bit of vindictiveness in my heart because I knew he couldn't do it. And I watched this man slowly. He dragged his two big flaccid legs to the edge of the bed. Uh, you know, like sweat pouring off his forehead, you know, slow. And he's staring at me the whole time, like, just watch me, you know, slowly. He like pushes his legs off the edge of the bed. So they're hanging off the edge of the bed. And then slowly he pushes like with all of his will and his might, he pushes himself into a sitting position. Okay. Now he's sitting on the edge of the bed. It took minutes that felt like hours and you know who knows what he was thinking he was probably thinking like yeah bitch you know so then i put the little like gate belt thing we use to hold them around his waist you know and i got the walker in front of the bed you know and i got it all set up he grabs the this bed rail pulls it like he's shaking you know his arms are shaking his legs are shaking he's sweating he's grimacing he pulls himself up to this standing position and i have my hands in the belt and i'm like holding him but he's doing it he's standing up and i'm like wow you just did that thing like i was so wrong and you were so right it meant so much to this guy to have the agency to freaking stand up when he wanted to stand up. That was the most victorious thing I have ever seen. Well, my, I think my single favorite object in the exhibit is this, which is a rope swing, which like what could be more elemental and simple and celebratory of a knot than a rope swing? Like basically what it is is this giant thick piece of rope that's tied to the, one of the ceiling braces in the barn here and goes all the way down to our level here and ends in a big terminal knot which serves as the seat. So you just sit on the rope like this and then you swing. Other knots we depend on to hold fast and desperately hope will never come undone. We watch for signs of fraying and slipping. We calculate the degree by which the number of turns and bends diminishes the strength of the rope. Today, we at the Museum of Everyday Life proffer this opportunity to meditate on the knot in its ubiquity, its miraculous strength, its myriad gifts, its intractable frictions and painful difficulties. The knot embodies something essential about what makes human human, our ability to create a complex, friction-filled series of crossings and loops that can grip and hold tight, and our parallel ability to untie what we have tied.
That was Claire Dolan, the maker of the Museum of Everyday Life in Glover, Vermont. I've made a number of shows with Claire over the years about the museum and beloved objects. You can find links to them on my website, rumblestripvermont.com. For more information about the museum and this year's exhibit, visit museumofeverydaylife.org. Rumblestrip is a proud member of Hub and Spoke, a collective of really unusual, smart, independently produced podcasts from all over the country. To learn more about the collective, visit hubspokeaudio.org. This is Rumblestrip. I'm Erica Heilman. Thanks a lot for listening. Mm-hmm.